0: Turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 29. I'm going to read a passage before I tell you much more about what's going on this morning. And then I'll explain. So 1 Chronicles 29 verses 1 through 9, I'm going to read. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, <clears throat> Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze. The iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, and all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by the craftsmen, gold, for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron, and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of, Je- of Jehiel, uh, the Jershonite. The Jer- then the people rejoiced because they had given freely. With a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Father, this morning we turn our hearts to your word. We ask that you would instruct us through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Awaken our hearts and our minds to respond in worship to what we see and hear in your word this morning. We pray that you would be honored and exalted among us, Lord. We, the refined and redeemed people of God. Lord, that we may be a salt and a light and a witness to this world as we go from here. So, Lord, we consecrate ourselves to the hearing and doing of your word this morning. We ask only in faith and according to the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I wanted to start the year off by talking about our commitments as a church. Like, what can you expect from us as a church? And what are the expectations on you if you are a part of this congregation? You you cannot over-communicate where you're headed and what your convictions are uh, between us. And so we want to make that very open. We talked about our commitment to um, the, the biblical literacy of our church. We talked about the importance of the Bible being the center and authority of everything that we do. And I've said this before, I don't know if it was that Sunday or some other Sunday, but I said basically most of our debate, if we have it, and at times we will, most of our should debate should be about the interpretation of a text. That should be what we're debating. It should be how is this text understood? Because our conviction is that the Bible is the authority. And so we want to find out what it says and let it shape us. And that's not to say that we are fully shaped by it yet, right? We're not fully shaped by it yet, which is why we commit as Christ leads to continue to worship together and to be refined by the word. Now, our second commitment this morning has to do with this idea of witness. So we've talked about Bible. We're looking at witness this morning. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the cultivation that we are committed to as well. But this morning, we're looking at this second element, which relates more specifically to the gatheredness, which is not a real word, but it helps us. It, it has to do with the gatheredness of the church. The being together of the church. The actual bouncing off one another that our lives do. That is, how do we function together? And this conviction is birthed out of the confession that Christ made, which is to say, the world will know that you are Christians by the way you love each other. And so, for those of you, some of us struggle with evangelism, sharing our faith, Jesus said that the bedrock foundation of your witness is how you love the brothers and sisters in the church. And that doesn't take getting up on a soapbox in the street corner. That just takes caring for each other. And that's why we stress praying for one another, uh, sharing our burdens with, with one another, making meals for one another when we're struggling, just holding each other up. That is our primary witness to the world. And increasingly lonely times in our world, that's going to be more and more uh, high impact for the world to see that we have a community, that we have people we can count on, that we can call up in the middle of the night if something goes wrong or if we're struggling or if we hit a crisis, that we have that. Because increasingly the world does not. The world is a lonely place and app companies are churning out technology after app, after app, trying to connect people. It's a desperate need in our world. And so the church says, after Christ, if you want to show the world that Jesus is real, that he's among you, you need to love each other. And you need to care for each other. Now, again, we're looking at sort of different elements of how this is played out. In all the ways that I just said, that is a critical reality in the way you love and care for one another and pray for one another. But one of the underemphasized ways that we do this, and I would say it's sadly underemphasized, it's probably not brought in enough to church conversation, and I myself am guilty of this as well, is the idea of our financial responsibility to each other. And so that's, why, that's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about our financial worship to God and our financial responsibility to each other as it relates to the church. Okay. And so there are two ditches that, that the church can fall into when we talk about money. The first ditch is the, uh, the far extreme would be the, the telethon-style uh, church discussion, which is to put a graph on the board and say, this is how close we are. You know, we need to hit this... Target by this date. And if you give now, you know, the Lord will double your investment. And it, it's a telethon. It's to stir you up. It's to motivate your guilt or your emotions and to say, now, 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 urgent, urgent, urgent. Uh, the telethon style. I, I, I think that's a horrible misrepresentation. And it's not the apostolic pattern for dealing with money in the scriptures. The other ditch uh, can be to, t- to go about it in a Gnostic over spiritualized way which is to say that the the physical things in life don't really matter that much and if we are so forced to deal with them well god will sort of take care of that and we just don't talk about money because that's that's some that's of the earth and that's we are spiritual and that's a ditch we don't want to go into either because jesus spoke extensively on money and in fact he taught us that we need to be savvy with our money we need to be smart with our money we need to invest it properly we need to use it properly And so the Bible gives us no shortage of help about our money. And so we don't need to be intellectual orphans saying, well, what do we do with this money? Especially here in Canada where, frankly, we do have a lot of it. And so I think a lot is going to be required of us in terms of our accountability to God. And I don't want to make you feel guilty for the, the blessings that you have financially. I don't want to make you feel guilty for the car that you drive or the house that you live in, just the comforts that you have. That is not how the scriptures speak of money. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, when uh, people were selling their possessions, Peter made it very clear to the people, look, things that belong to you are yours. You are under no obligation to sell them and give to the church. And if you do so, do so willingly and freely. So there's no guilt about having things or living in the world that we do. So that we're not starting from that point. And in fact, I want to I jump to that 2 Corinthians passage uh, to, to get us started. Because again, Paul the apostle would never shy away from speaking about money, which is why we need to follow, as a church, we need to follow the apostolic pattern. We need to talk about money the way the apostles did. And that's going to shape how we deal with it. So Paul says in Second Corinthians 9, Paul says, now it is superfluous, that's a big word, but it sort of means like redundant, It is almost not needful for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness. I know you guys are already ready to deal with this need, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead of you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction or not as a collection. That's why we don't telethon. That's why we don't tell that it may be a willing gift, not an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Did you hear that again? Not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely and he is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So boy, would this be awkward at a lot of churches. What he's saying is, you've heard there's a need among the saints... And you guys heard of the need. You heard that people were financially in need. And as a church, you got really excited. We want to donate to them. We want to send a pile of money down to these Christians so we can help them out. And Paul says, I've been boasting about that because that's a phenomenal response. It's a very generous, uh, kind, and cooperative thought. And he says, now here's the deal. That's wonderful, but... The, but I'm worried about this. I'm worried that I'm going to have boasted all about this, and then I'm going to all come with some guys from that church, and I'm going say, these are the generous folks I've been telling you about. And they'll all be like, who, us? Right. So Paul is saying, if you're zealous to be generous, make sure you actually do it. Uh, don't embarrass the Christians that I've been talking about. Like, make sure it's ready and willing and sitting there, not so that we can come along and say, now, you, you know, your letter said you were going to give, you know, 600 bucks, uh, like, let's tally it up. That's the exaction. He says, I, just get it ready in advance so that we come. It really looks like you're as zealous as we've been saying. So Paul's like, he's diving into the details of how this collection is going to be taken up. I mean, the use and the, the discussion of money in the apostolic pattern is, is very specific. And it's very detail-oriented, and it's very focused on the properties of how money is managed and the spiritual realities that they represent. This is the apostolic pattern in the New Testament, but I don't want to just start talking about money per se. I want to look at, as I usually do, I want to go back earlier in the scriptures to find out how money functioned among God's people throughout most of redemptive history. And so I want to look at three elements, and so I've, I've... I've laid out sort of that First uh, Testament passage and then this New Testament passage, and I want to go back and I want to look at the temple, God's temple in Israel. I want to look at Jesus in Jerusalem specifically, and then I want to finish back up with the New Testament church, okay? And our responsibilities and our response to this reality. So let's start, as I said, back in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the temple of God, and I read that passage from first. Um, 1 Chronicles 29, where David is speaking about how they're going to build the temple. Now, before we get there, uh, we're going to talk about where Israel came from. And you've heard this story a lot of times, but you can't be reminded enough that Israel was God's people. They were a nation, right? They had been freed from slavery to the Egyptians. Egyptians economically dominated them, enslaved them to build and to work in their cities for no pay. Okay, they were literal slaves. They were, they were not an autonomous people. They were under the control of the Egyptians. And when God freed them from that slavery, you remember the miraculous story of the Red Sea parting and God's people went through? It was just a sign that God was miraculously extracting them from that oppression and then he swallowed up the Egyptian army as they pursued. So there's no question that these were God's people under God's hand. And God assured them when they made it to the wilderness outside of Egypt, God assured them of his presence in a pillar of fire which led them by night. It gave heat and light to guide them. And he assured them of his presence through a pillar of cloud during the day. That God was still with his people. And then Moses, this character who had brought them out, this prophet who had brought them out of Egypt, uh, received instruction where he was to build a tabernacle, a tent, in the wilderness, like a temporary uh, worship site where people, the priests, could worship God on behalf of the people and intercede for them, and God was worshipped in that place. He was prayed to in that place. They would light incense, and the smoke would go up as a representation of prayers. This was the sort of physical representation of God's presence. Now, he didn't live inside the tent— But Israel could say, God is with us, and this is where his glory is. It's a very important reality for these people. Now, during their time in Israel, or in, uh, in the wilderness, they referred back to the promise that they had received in Abraham, which is that he would inherit a land, and that he would be the father of a nation. And so as this promise became a reality, God brought them into the promised land, the land of Canaan, that great land that he had so long ago promised their father Abraham. And so as they gained more permanence and more of the features of a, an autonomous nation, nation, which is borders, land security, provision, wealth security, uh, army protection, all those sorts of things that marked out an independent nation, as those became a reality, God also gave instruction for the building of a permanent temple. So it was sort of the the tabernacle, they were done. They, They didn't need to move it around anymore because they had a permanent space now, right? So they were excited about getting a permanent building. It would be sort of like a rite of passage for the nation to say, okay, now you're here. Now you're secure. Now you can build a temple that you don't have to worry about moving. Do you understand the symbol of God's peace over them to say, look, I've given you the land and now I want you to build me a permanent house because you're not going to be displaced from this land. You're not going to be moved. This is where you can know you're going to worship me. It's sort of like the 16-year-old getting the keys to the car for the first time. It's like, now you're grown up. You know, now you have access to the things uh, that are truly uh, necessary for you to function in the world. And for Israel, the permanence of the temple represented God being with them. That they knew God was on their side. Okay, and there was instruction for worship and for, the, and for construction, and we read about the onyx and the stones and the wood and all those different elements that God had instructed them to build it. David, the king that we've heard a lot about a few weeks ago, David the king who succeeded Saul, he was a king of war. Okay, He was a valiant warrior. He shed a lot of blood, okay? And so when David asked God, hey, God, I want to be the guy who builds you a house. God said, no, it's not going to be you. This is in 1 Chronicles 17. He says to him, you are a king of war. I don't want you building my house of worship. I, because you through war have established peace. I want your son Solomon to build me the temple. So Solomon kind of gets the contract. And David gets excited about it. David is rich because he has the spoils of war. He's, he's, a, he's a secure king. So he says, not only does my kingdom have lots of gold to contribute, but I personally am very rich. Did you hear that in that first passage? He said, I am also rich and I'm going to contribute to the building of the temple. And what's amazing about this passage, what I love about it, why I read it in the first place in our worship this morning, was because when the people saw the vision for God among them, for a temple for worship they got excited they came and they brought their free will offering david didn't send out a tax okay he didn't demand and shake them upside down by the ankles when they saw a vision for the worship of the living god amongst themselves in a temple they came and rejoiced they gave and then they got excited about giving they were so pumped to contribute to the worship of God in his house. This is important because the temple thus represents God's work among his people. It wasn't a building just for its own sake. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God crafted the granite in the earth. He does not need a limestone temple overlaid with gold and silver. He does not need any of that. And so with the building of the temple, God gave ethical demands. In other words, you have this right, you have this blessing, if you follow me. But God said in the, in the covenants, in, in Deuteronomy, he said to them, If you disobey me, the land will spew you out, expel you. And we see that when Israel was disobedient, they were expelled from the promised land. They were taken into captivity. And guess what symbolized their disobedience? The disrepair of the temple. Go around to a town where economic provision has left. And you can imagine Smith's Falls 10 or 15 years ago. The vacant signs that went up. Any of you have been around a long time? I moved here just at the tail end of that when things were starting to turn around. But the grocery stores that closed down. And I drive through with Shannon oftentimes and I'll say, you know, do you remember when that was a store? Do you remember what that used to be? And she can tell me because she's been around and it's, it's very interesting for me. But the mark of the success of a town is the occupancy and care of its buildings. And when they fall apart, when they fall into disrepair, there's a, there's a certain sorrow that we feel. And you can go on the internet and actually search, you know, abandoned uh, cathedrals or abandoned schools and they're all over the place. And there's a tinge of grief that we feel when we see a beautiful auditorium you know with the ceiling caved in and the seats are all ruined and the stage is full of debris there's just a sense that there's it's not right it should be maintained and all the more so when it's God's holy temple and when it falls into disrepair that's the symbol of Israel's disobedience and so God gives them demands he says if you want to stay in this temple if you want to worship me you obey me he says to them i'm not keeping this temple to sort of cover over your sin. I'm going to let the temple reflect your obedience to me. And if you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's amazing story about the rebuilding when they're sent back from captivity, and there's this interesting note where the old men, when it gets rebuilt, there's a lot, the young men rejoice and the old men weep. Because the old men remember the disobedience that led to it. They see the wasted years. They see the disobedience. And they weep for the realities that this rebuilding uh, represents. And so when God's people invest, even in the building of a temple, they're not investing solely in a building. They're investing in spiritual things, things unseen, obedience to God and ministry and worship of God and prayer. They're, They're investing in a certain way, the space to do that, and, and, and they're paying the men to lead them in the prayers and the sacrifice. Even Solomon, who was commissioned to build it, he said in Second Chronicles 2, 6, Who is able to build him a house, since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him, except as a place to make offering to him? What a beautiful recognition from Solomon. Solomon, in all of his glory, in all of his wealth, said, even if I build this building, the only reason it's worthwhile is so that it's a place to worship God. And so God gave them an opportunity through the temple to worship in a secure and meaningful way. So the temple is central for Israel's spiritual condition. Now, I want to move on to Jesus in Jerusalem, specifically Jerusalem, because that's where the temple was. So when we look at Jesus in Jerusalem, one of the main features that you notice is that Jesus, in his confrontation with the Jews, especially as it climaxed in Holy Week before he was crucified, it largely surrounded the temple. Jesus' confrontation with the Jewish nation and the Jewish leaders largely centered around the temple, how it was used, How it was perceived. There's no coincidence there. Because the leaders in Jerusalem. In Israel. Knew that the temple was their baby. Now this was the rebuilt temple. This was the Herodian temple. Uh, There's there's no evidence that God truly had filled that temple with his glory. In the way he did with Solomon. But the leaders in Israel. this This is the pinnacle of their hypocrisy. That they were obsessed with the temple. And their hearts were so far from God. And Jesus, and you can see this in Mark uh, chapter 13, go there. You can also keep your finger in uh, toward the end of John. When Jesus enters Jerusalem for that final time, Mark 13 is a good place to see this. He goes in and for the second time, for the second time in scriptures, Jesus goes into the temple. You remember what he does in the temple? Does he light candles and start a song? That's right. He goes in there and he flips the tables and he makes a cord, a whip, and he drives out the money changers. He sends out all the sellers. He tells the pigeon salesman, take your wares and get out. And why does he say this? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Because God's temple is not a place of economic business. When I used to read that, I used to think, well, does that mean that churches can't sell books You know, in their... I used to think that. How can churches have bookstores when Jesus did this? There's nothing wrong, per se, with selling books in church or even in the temple. But what had happened was the temple had become a means of extortion because people had to travel from long distances to come and worship God. And they knew that there was um, uh, sacrificial demands. You had to sacrifice a pigeon or a lamb. And it's hard to travel with these birds when you're you know, traveling two, three, four days with your family. So what they would do is they would travel, they would show up, and they would buy their sacrifice on site. Well, I think there's nothing really wrong with that. I think it's a good system. The problem was, it's like when you go to a hockey game and you're not allowed to bring drinks in. How much does a beer cost at a hockey game? i not, not trying to out you here. I've bought one at a hockey game, and it's like $12. All right, so... The, because they know you have nowhere else to go. The prices go way up. And Jesus said, when that happens in God's temple, that is a travesty. You have missed the point of the temple. The temple is supposed to be a place of access to God, not of gatekeeping for God. It's supposed to be a place where people can come freely. Not as a place where you're going to get ripped off for your money. And so it, it infuriates Jesus that it had become a place of profit rather than a place of provision. And so he flips the tables... They were not impressed with this. They did not enjoy that. They did not say, That's an interesting form of worship, Jesus. Is that a new church planting technique? They were angry. And you know what they said to him? By what authority do you do this? In other words, this is God's sacred place. So now they're speaking for God, they think. Whose authority are you on to flip the tables over in here? And you know how Jesus responds? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. So he says, "I'll show you my authority. When you kill me, I will raise it up again in three days." Now, backing back up to his confrontation in Passion Week, it centers around the temple. Do you know what he does later? He's sitting along uh, by the um, in the treasury, in the treasury department, and he's sitting there. This is Mark chapter twelve. He's sitting there and he sat down opposite the treasure and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Probably a lot like that. And Jesus sat over here just at a distance and he sort of grabbed a chair and he just looked. He just watched. Who's putting money in? How much are they putting in? What's the the deal here at the temple? What's it like to be a part of the temple today? And you all probably know this story. And he sees who? He says a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins after many rich people put in large sums. How do they know I put in large sums? Because they made a big deal of it. It'd be like me going over to the offering box and kind of opening my wallet and shaking it in. Look how generous I am. So they put in large sums. And Jesus sees a, a widow. And she puts in her two small copper coins. And he called his disciples and said to them, I want to show you a lesson here. This widow put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had to live on. That has become a verse to raise money for building projects. This verse has been so badly abused because everyone gathers around and says, look, she gave even what she had to live on. So what's your excuse? Oh, you need to pay your gas bill? Well, Jesus says, put in what you have to live on. Totally wrong. Because you know what he does right after that? The disciples say, look at these magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, do you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left on top of another. They will be torn to shreds. Jesus is not thinking positively about the temple right now. He's not saying, go put all your money in the temple treasury. He's saying, that's money after bad. It's going to be destroyed. And do you know why? Because the temple is supposed to be a means of caring for the vulnerable. It's supposed to be a place of worship. And this widow puts in the last of what she had to live on. She should be receiving from the temple. She should be gaining what she needs. She should be keeping her pockets filled with those coins and taking food home, having people care for her. The rich are contributing to the temple and ignoring the needs of the widow. Jesus rebuked them another time when he said, you tithe you know, your mint and your cumin and you do perfectly what the law says. And then when your elderly parents call on you because they need something, your response, he says to them, is, oh, What I would have given you, I've already given to God. And Jesus says, that is such wickedness. It's so wicked to deprive people of their genuine need by masking it over with spirituality. Jesus is not impressed with the contribution to the temple here. Why not? Because it has lost its meaning. It has lost the point of its use. And so God sets his mind through Christ to judge Israel. About 30, 40 years after Jesus was crucified, God fulfilled the promise that Jesus made when he said, not one of these stones will be left on top of another. In 70 AD, uh, the, uh, Jerusalem was sieged upon uh, the Jews were trapped inside. They cannibalized one another. Uh, and finally, uh, when the invaders made it into the city, they ripped every stone apart. You know why? Because there was overlaying gold. And when they had burned it, the gold had melted between the stones. And so they pulled the stones apart to extract as much wealth as they could from the temple. Jesus' prophecy about the temple came true to the letter that not one stone will be left upon another. Why does God's judgment come down so hard on the temple? Because the temple is the symbol of Israel's faithfulness to him. And Israel had totally rejected God, totally rejected him. They rejected his son, they put him out, they crucified him, and God said, your temple will not stand. So he destroys it. And beyond that, it vindicates Jesus Christ who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What does that tell us about Jesus? That he is the true temple. Jesus Christ becomes the access point to God. Jesus Christ becomes the mediator of our prayers. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, our high priest. Jesus, our place of acceptance. Jesus, our true worship and our righteousness. Jesus is the true temple. This is why Christianity decentralized from Jerusalem out into the global uh, reaches of the earth because the temple was no longer necessary for access to God. We had a high priest in Jesus Christ. And so Christ is vindicated, his prophecy fulfilled, and Israel is finally and completely judged, which is why anytime you hear prophecy that the temple is going to be rebuilt and that it's going to be once again filled with pleasing sacrifice to God, it's not true. It's not going to happen. If the temple ever gets rebuilt, God's not going back inside. Let me just be very clear about that. Whatever you believe about the end times, the temple is not a significant part of God's redemptive plan. It's not even a part of God's redemptive plan anymore. Jesus is the true temple. He is the eternal son of God. So we know that Christ is our true temple. We being the people of God know that Christ is our temple. So how does that affect our Money. Does that mean that we no longer have a spiritual obligation to God? Because, well, there's no temple to build. We don't need gold and onyx and wood and all these fancy things because Jesus, right? It's Jesus. There's no... So, so now, Christians don't need to do anything with money. We can sort of do with it as we please. Um, I, I hope you see how that would be a disjunctive... Assumption on our part, and it would be ignoring the whole counsel of Scripture. And so when the Jews rejoiced in building the temple, and they invested to see that happen, when we, through Christ, are assembled together, how do we rejoice in the financial investment in what God is doing? If the temple was God's sign of his pleasure and presence with the Jewish people, how does our financial investment bring about the assurance and the building of God's presence and power among us? Now, we don't buy the power of God. The, Acts, uh, the book of Acts makes that very clear. The apostles rebuke anyone who would be willing to offer or try to offer money to buy God. That's not how it works. It's, salvation is a gift of grace by faith. But how does money fit into that? Christ taught extensively on money. And so Christ's teaching gives us principles and understanding about money. And then when the New Testament is is written and the church is formed, that gives us opportunity to exercise the teaching of Christ on money, among everything else that is included in the New Testament. So we're going to jump from Jesus in the temple now to the formation of the church. And this is where we're going to see a bit more rubber meeting the road for us. What is our financial responsibility to God and to each other? This is where our doctrine and our theology is going to meet with our practical responsibility. One thing we need to recognize is that the church was born into a Jewish culture. Do you all know that? It was, Jesus came to the Jews first. The church was comprised almost entirely of Jews in its first early years. So the people that formed the first church had a Jewish mindset. They had a Jewish culture. And they understood the Old Testament. They understood God's demands that he would, God had a tax. He had a head tax of half a shekel on every man over 20. Interesting about that tax. God said specifically in Exodus chapter 30 that that the, the rich will not pay more and the poor will not pay less. So if you want a tax system that's biblical, that's it. It's a flat tax, it's a single tax, it's a head tax. Above that, God also gave provision for tithes and offerings, free will offerings. And in Exodus 30, it's spoken like this, You shall take atonement money from the people and give it in service for the tent of meeting. That's the tent of meeting, understand that? The tent of meeting is where the priests would do their sacrifice and, and their offering and worship. And here's the here's the the purpose, Exodus 30:16 says explicitly why this money investment is important. To give to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people to remembrance before the Lord. The whole point of the worship system is so that God's people will remember the Lord. They will be brought before him in worship and in, in atoning sacrifice and in incense prayers. All of that is to remind people who God is. God has never formed a religion where it's basically you in the secret places alone with no reference point. God has always given markers and signs to help you in your walk. And in the Old Testament, he said, the point of this meeting is so that they will remember me. And what's amazing about that is the greater degree to which Israel supported and invested in the temple and in the tent and followed after its demands, the greater degree they became a witness to the world. They became a city of God. And the the same is true for us. That the more obedient we are to God, the more vibrantly and radiantly we shine about who God is to the world. We become a city of God among the city of man, a nation of the redeemed. And so the first century church, who, who was Jewish in their background, I just want to read a quote for you. They understood the necessity of investing in God's work. There was, no, there was never any question about that. They didn't need a special sermon on financial contribution because that's the way they had lived under God their whole lives. And I think, sadly, we have drifted from that to a massive degree here in the 21st century. But we live in a time that's been heavily influenced by socialist and Marxist thinking. Now, politics aside, all that that means is a centralization and an enlarging of the government. It's to say that the government needs to be responsible for all resources. The government needs to equalize outcomes and opportunities for all. It's that the government becomes the overlord of man. That's the Marxist approach to life. Karl Marx, when he wrote his manifesto, he declared the government to be a, a necessary tool, albeit a temporary one, until utopia was achieved. So essentially, the government needs as much control as possible. Then they can engineer a paradise and a peace among men. And then the government will essentially dissolve and disappear into nothing and will have paradise. That was communism. That's socialism and communism. Those are the ends of it. And so government becomes the all-powerful tool to bring that about. We have no idea how much we've been influenced by that, especially in Canada. And that thinking has permeated the church, even unknowingly. We declare Christ as Lord, and yet we grant so much authority to our government. Our government which has taken over Healthcare, our government which has taken over education, our government which has taken over welfare, all of the responsibilities of which once fell to God's people. Government has taken over and dictated how all of those realms are to be managed. And so, in our time, how do we fight against that mentality declaring that Christ is Lord and that his kingdom will produce paradise? Not the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God producing paradise. Jesus said very clearly, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. Now again, we need to reclaim that because so much of our taxes go to building a humanist pagan state. Even if you homeschool your children, your taxes go to fund pagan education in the public systems today. You have no choice in the matter. So how do Christians respond to a growing Uh, pagan state encroaching more and more upon the freedom of its people. Joe Boot in The Mission of God says, Biblical faith requires and creates a rival government to the humanist state. To be saved is to be members of a new creation and God's kingdom, and to be working members of that realm. God's tax, his tithe, is used by godly men to create schools, hospitals, welfare agencies, counselors, and more. Again, looking back at the Old Testament, Joe Boot quotes saying, the tax was limited to half a shekel per man. All other functions of the government were financed by the tithe. Health, education, welfare, worship were all provided for by the tithes and offerings. Of this, one-tenth went to the priests for worship and perhaps an equal amount went for music, for the care of the sanctuary. The tax or the tithe was God's provision for basic government in God's way. And so God funded the way his government would work. And in the same way, Jesus said, Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And we can, you know, conservative Christians can complain all we want about big government. Do you know how Jesus said to rival big government? He said, make sure you give to God what is God's. The problem the church has today is that we have no problem giving to Caesar. And we hold back from God. And then we wonder why the kingdom of God is stagnant or not expanding in our time. There is a startling connection between the church shrinking back from her financial responsibilities to God and to one another. And the growth of the totalitarian regime. The governments that we see in power today. More and more. And you see Europe is way ahead of us on the curve. Uh, Countries cracking down, reducing freedom. And they say that Christianity was the, was the great impediment to freedom. But now if you want to homeschool your children in the UK, you're subject to home inspection once a semester. In Germany, it's illegal to school your own children at home. That's not a free state. That's a state that says your children belong to us. And in our time, the church holding back from Christ is stagnating the response to the gospel. We're stagnating the work by not investing in the way that the Jewish people once did. Acts chapter 5, when we see salvation take place, uh, there are spontaneous and radical acts of generosity. People sell everything they have and they just give it to the apostles. And they're like, we are so excited about salvation. Take our money and use it to fund the poor. Use it to preach and send missionaries. Just go with it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Macedonians, Paul speaks about, he says, when they heard about a need, they were impoverished themselves, but they begged Paul, let us be a part of helping these other Christians. Let us send money with you. Paul says they gave even out of their poverty, above and beyond their own means. It was spontaneous. It was spontaneous. And this is why there's no such thing as a godly financial drive in the church. We don't do that. It needs to be a spontaneous response of the heart of God's goodness in your life. Now, as I said, the church is the assembly of God's temple today. Uh, there's a very strong connection in, in, in contributing to the Lord and investing in His work. You do that through the local church. The reason why is that in this scripture, the apostolic pattern, we see two main responsibilities for the church. The maintenance of the Word of God and the care for the vulnerable. We see that over and over and over again. Acts chapter 6, we see when the widows... Uh, did not have food uh, provided for properly. The church says, we need to provide for them. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul gives Timothy instructions for widows in, in t- when they will be included in the care of the widows. He says, if they're godly and if they are uh, rich in good works, then include them in the eating In 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord commands that those who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who preach and teach the word of God. So the church has two financial responsibilities, caring for the poor and one another and maintaining the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. And so as we invest in the church, we will see these two areas grow in their influence. And so this is the modern day temple. This is the new covenant temple. The people of God assembled together, investing in these things. I'm going to close with, I know know this is dense and it's long, but I'm just going to close with a few practical ways to respond to these realities. I would say just before I close that one of the biggest ways we keep ourselves on the spiritual sidelines of God's kingdom is by keeping money private from our faith. That's one of the greatest ways we stay on the spiritual sidelines. Jesus gave an amazing statement that he said, where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. If you struggle with feeling close to the Lord or being a part of his work, it's probably because you're not invested financially in it. Because your heart is following your money. When you give to the Lord, when you begin to invest in his work, your heart chases your money into the work of God. It's an amazing act that God performs in your life using money. Money can be a powerful tool. So I'm just going to close with a few principles to help free us from slavery to money. And I I preach these to myself. Number one, that giving to God maintains spiritual vitality and it guards your sanctification. Again, Jesus said, where your treasure is, so will also be your heart. And so when you give to God, he actually leads you closer toward him. Number two, giving to God minimizes the risk to your faith Paul said again to Timothy in 1st Timothy I believe it's 6 he said because many because of many cravings many have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains that's that famous verse money is the root of all kinds of evil and so the more you collect the more you are after in money for your own sake the more risk your christian faith is in i put it this way how much money do you want if it's be if it's your enemy if, you, if, if money is going to lead you from the Lord, if you hoard it, how much of it do you want? I would say I want to get rid of as much as possible. Right? Like, more money, more problems. Like Give to God so that it's not sitting in your account taking you captive. Uh, giving to God magnifies His glory and His kingdom. Even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His ministry was supported by women who followed Him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus didn't say, oh, don't worry, God will provide. The women provided. The women provided for Jesus' ministry. And lastly, uh, giving to God gives the world a glimpse of his care for his children. When churches are thriving financially, we have opportunity to train more pastors, send more missionaries, um, disciple more single women, counsel more marriages that are struggling. We have more power to do more ministry. R.C. Sproul always said, you know what you can do with $100 worth of ministry? You can do $100 of ministry. You know what you cannot do? You cannot do $101 of ministry with $100. Christians need to stop over-spiritualizing money. That it, there is a power that we can use to invest to grow God's kingdom. And so I ask, what, what are we investing in? What are we doing as a church? And, and I would urge and, and explain to you that if this is your church, you are financially responsible to God through this church. And I would just say that's a biblical command and that we don't exact, we don't shake you down by the ankles. It is between you and the Lord. It's an overflow from your heart. But I would challenge and exhort you, are you in the place God wants you to be spiritually in your relationship with money? And hopefully this provides for us a doctrine for generosity, a doctrine for sustaining our fellowship here. I get paid, and I'm a willing servant of you in the Word of God. And if you are growing in the Word of God, continue to invest in it so that I can train others to do what I'm doing. We have to pay to keep the lights on here to come in here every Sunday morning when it's warm. It's not unspiritual to pay the rent. It's not unspiritual to do those things. And so um, where God leads you, I pray, is is to a place of uh, financial and spiritual health in relationship to money.